How do you obtain the kingdom? That's a very important question for you this morning and for me. How can you genuinely, truly, biblically obtain the kingdom? There's a lot of people today in churches with false assurances, with presuppositions and, and, and presumptions. They're good to go. They're in the kingdom. They do their work and do lots of good things. But truly... How can you obtain the greatest treasure and value that you will ever know in this life and the one to come? The first thing the Lord does in these two parables is He presses the value of the kingdom. The value. And that's where these two illustrations lie in these two parables. The kingdom is like, first of all, a treasure which is hidden in a field. A treasure is an accumulation of very expensive and valuable items that are highly desirable, and each one of them has a value in itself, but the treasure is the the hoarding and the gathering into one place of all of these things. Think about all those things you said you valued in life. If you could dream a little further and now add to the list, all those things can be gathered up in one place to, that, are, that, that are the highest value to you personally. The kingdom of heaven is like that. greatest possible value that you can think of in life has of all the facets in all the different areas that you may have identified all gathered up in one place. That's a treasure. Kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. In the ancient world, the pearl was the costliest of gems. On my wedding day, I gave my wife a necklace of pearls. They were not cheap, but they were cultured pearls. They were not fake pearls, but they were cultured, meaning that there was a way in which man has figured out to insert something into an oyster and in uh, a way that would cause this oyster to grow pearls. But in those days, there was no cultivation of pearls. There were no cultured pearls. There were no false pearls. The only way that you were going to get pearls in those days is you were going to dive and recover oysters and mussels and the mollusk that make them inside of their shell and get it the old hard way. In fact, for those of you who don't know how a pearl is made, and I'm certainly no pearl expert, but something like a a mollusk, which is like an oyster, uh, which is typical, or a mussel that has a a shell, and the little creature lives inside the shell, if there enters into something that is an irritant to the animal inside, 
He covers the irritant, whether it be a grain of sand, whether it be something that got in when a crab was trying to get it. Then he begins to cover that with calcium carbonate and he layers it and layers it and layers it till the irritant is kind of out of his way. And that calcium carbonate structure is a pearl. Not all varieties of oysters and mussels make pearls and even... The ones that do are not all alike. There's a variety, but not all are equally costly or valuable. It is a rather random occurrence, even in those that do make pearls. And the most valuable pearls are the ones that are perfectly round that occur in the natural world made by those little critters without any outside interference. Those are the most rare. In fact, those were the only kinds in the ancient days. And the only way to find that pearl is to dive for them and scrape up a lot of the barnacles or the oysters or the mollusk and open them up. And if you've ever opened oysters before, that can be kind of a chore in itself. But you open it up and you dig through it and you find, oh, no pearl. And you go to the next one, no pearl. Oh, here's a little speck. Okay. And you can go through hundreds before you find a pearl. And even the pearl you find is not necessarily going to be great. It could be oblong or elliptical, but the most costly are perfectly round. And when there is one that is of a very fine nature, that one likely took hundreds, if not thousands, of oysters to go through. Many years having searched for one without ever coming close to it. And it's of a great value. It's a once in a lifetime find that is like the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure of a found in a field of a bunch of accumulated, worthy, expensive objects. Or it's like a pearl, once-in-a-lifetime find. The kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses this term more often than not. There have been lots of theories and theologies that are built around the distinction between the kingdom of heaven that Matthew uses and the kingdom of God, which Mark and Luke uses. Almost as though those are two different things going on to two different peoples, and that's not at all. Matthew does use kingdom of God a couple of times, but the idea is he's speaking to, to Jews, and it's sharing forth this idea of the way that the Jews would refrain from the proper name of God, and heaven stands for God. It's the same thing that Matthew is speaking, that Luke is speaking, and that you can see that in parallel fashion in the synoptic gospels. But what is this kingdom referring to? It's not a kingdom up in heaven. What he's speaking about is God's kingdom rule over everything in life. And when Jesus came, that kingdom came here to this earth in the greatest of manifestations and power and glory. And the kingdom of God, when you have obtained it, is the acknowledgement, the understanding, and the yielding to 
the rule of God over every aspect of your life. I want you to think about that. Have you obtained the kingdom of God? Have you come to understand and to acknowledge and to yield your life over all of God's rule, over every aspect of your life? If you have, you have found a once in a lifetime treasure that has all kinds of benefits. Your fears, they come under God's sovereignty. Knowledge that God has everything in your life perfectly planned out. He designed the day that you were born. You had no say so. Your parents didn't even much have a plan for how and when that would come about. He knows the day you will die. I happened to, in somewhat kind of a random way, pick up uh, Turretin's eclectic theology today, and I happened to be thumbing through the con content, was not looking for this, but happened to read the section, the table of contents about um, your birth and your death, and has God decreed the very day that you're born, and the very day that you'll die, and the way and manner in which you'll die, and can then that be changed at all? Absolutely, He has, and it cannot be changed at all, period. Nothing is going to change what God has already decreed. Can you place yourself willingly under that complete government of God? He governs every aspect of your life. You have no reason to fear except for God himself. An aspect of obtaining the kingdom of heaven for yourself includes the very valuable benefits of not being controlled or giving over to fear And if you truly know the God of heaven, you've got a personal relationship with him. You come to know the very one for who he is. He is sovereign. He is in control of your life. When you come to yield to that and obtain that kingdom, that rule. What a great treasure it is. You will know that he it is he that has made you and not you yourself. You'll come to realize that you're the sheep of his pasture. You come to understand that he's the good shepherd. You will come to see that he loves you more than you love yourself. You come to see that he can protect you more than you can ever control your circumstances. He provides for you not only to the minimalist way, but he can provide for you far beyond what your job and anything you could ever come up with to the extent that you will look back and say, man, my cup just keeps running over. And that's what he desires for his people to understand, to acknowledge and to bow their knee to. He is the one who made you the way you are. He's gifted you the way you're gifted. He has sustained you through danger. And you are here today. You think you planned this 25 years ago to be here on this day at this time with this people? I didn't. He's been in control of every detail of your life, which necessarily includes every detail of everybody else around you and every other thing around you. 
including your history and the context in which you come into this world in which you now are, includes the air that you breathe. It includes the family you've come from, the environment out of which you've come. Whether that be a good one or bad, he was sovereignly in control. The friends you've grown up with, the skills you've learned, the cars that you pass every day without thinking about God keeping you and it right where you should be for your safety. You just take it for granted. Now, we pray about those things, but the very details of the very minutia of every little time and second that we're driving down the road, you're not thinking about that, but he is. He's got you. God's kingdom in your life is an understanding of his complete government over all of life and your submission to that. That's why we call him Lord, but not just Lord of my life, Lord of all, and certainly Lord of my life. Obtaining the kingdom is not merely recognizing that God is sovereign. And you hear me, you reformed people. (laughs) It's giving yourself to his government in your life, in every aspect of your life, with your heart, with your trust. And when you do that, it's like a fair, fine, rare, expensive, valuable, once-in-a-lifetime treasure that you cannot value anything else in comparison to it. The greatest thing you can ever have is to bow your knee to King Jesus in every part of your life. Well, how do people come in contact with that? That's the second part that he gives us in the parable. Both these parables are very parallel and they both have these contents to them. How do people come in contact with the kingdom of God. And he's going to give us two ways in each of these two parables that illustrate two ways in which people come into contact with the kingdom. The first one, mentioned in verse 44, is that the kingdom is a treasure hidden in a field that a person just comes and he stumbles across it. (laughs) Whoa. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't seeking it. He wasn't going after it. He just comes and he finds it. He just stumbles across it. Very similar to the way I got my life. I wasn't looking for a relationship. Two weeks earlier, I was on the phone with my mom and I was telling her, Mom, I'm done for a while. I'm not looking for any relationship. I'm not looking to get involved. I... I need to focus on my school and my career, and that's it. Love you, Mom. And two weekends from that phone call, I go back to Jacksonville, Florida. I happen to be attending uh, a wedding at the church that I grew up in that I haven't been back to in years, and I was going with an old friend that I haven't seen in a long time, and he just said, hey, why don't you come to the, the wedding and see some of the old friends? I did. I come along, and unto me, uh, unknown to me, uh, there was Chesley walking down the aisles, one of the attendants in the, in the wedding. I actually love to hear her story. She turns around, and she says, there I saw Marion with Jim. Now, Jim and my wife had a 
date after the wedding was over. And they were supposed to, Jim was going to lose me, and they, that's what they're, and I knew that. She changed things around and thought that maybe we should all get together as old friends, and the rest is somewhat history from there, poor Jim. <laughs> I wasn't looking for it. She wasn't looking for it. We just kind of stumbled across it, and God was had it all planned out. And everything in my life since that time has been completely different. All my plans and my focus from that evening on took a different turn. Master's degree? <laughs> nah, not now. Um, school? Got to get that finished up, but... I'm not going to worry about my grades this last semester. I've got enough momentum. I'm going to graduate no matter how well or how poorly I do. I'm just, this is not a pattern here, young people. This is <laughs> not an example to follow. Um, my interest had had a whole different... I wasn't looking for that. Told mom two weeks early I wasn't looking for that. Just God put it before me. From my perspective, I just stumbled across the greatest earthly treasure that I had found, and everything else was quite secondary or tertiary or just really of little importance anymore. My perspective changed. And no regrets. Well, that's how some people find the kingdom. Like I found my wife. From their perspective, they just stumble across it. They weren't looking for it. They stumble across it like a treasure hidden in the field. And there it is. Some people end up in a service like this. Some people whose friend God saves and their friend begins to share with them how and what God has done. They weren't looking for it. And all of a sudden, here it is. And the kingdom has come upon them and they come in contact with it. And they weren't looking for it. It seems very arbitrary and somewhat random from our perspective. But we know that God's perspective is completely different. It was all quite organized, deliberate, decreed, specific, part of even the way he rules over every detail of our lives. It didn't just happen. But from our perspective in the moment, it seems like it did. Well, that's how one way people come. In contact with the kingdom. Well, there's another way that people come in contact with the kingdom, and that's the second parable, and that is some people, God opens their eyes of understanding before they encounter the treasure in order to be seeking for it. Now, it's not that they have eyes to see and hearts to understand yet, but God works in a way in their heart, that they are now on a search for it. Like the man is searching, the merchant, for that costly, that once in a lifetime, and he finds it after he has been searching. We've got many historical references and examples of people like this who have given up everything they have. And abandoned everything for this search that they were on. There are several examples in scripture that illustrate these two categories of people. 
those who stumble across it, and those who search for it. Let's consider a couple of those examples to help us. We have the woman at the well, and Jesus took his disciples to Samaria, and there in John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well. She was not expecting to encounter the kingdom that day. She wasn't looking for the Messiah in that way, and here she is coming to draw water out of the well, and Jesus encounters her and engages her in conversation. Another one who stumbled across it was a thief on the cross. Not looking for the kingdom, even reviling the Lord at one moment, and then calling upon the Lord another moment before death. Philippian jailer, he obviously wasn't looking for the kingdom. Two particular Prisoners that night, Paul and Silas, in an occurrence that almost cost him his life had he had not been stopped by his own prisoners from taking his own life, which is a completely unusual kind of situation. There are so many people in this world who are not looking for the kingdom. They're not looking for divine providence. And God puts someone in their life or brings the gospel near to open their heart in a way that they were not even looking for. And so many churches today are focused on being so seeker friendly that there's so many things wrong with that model. And the one thing that's wrong with it among many things is they are not even considering this category of people who come in contact with the kingdom, but we're never looking for it. There are some examples of those who were seeking it on a quest for this great pearl. Nicodemus comes to mind. The rich young ruler is another one who then comes and seeks the Lord. And some people actually seek the kingdom because God has put it in their heart to do so first. And if God is at work in people's hearts to first to begin seeking him in some way, like a Cornelius, who then God says, I've heard your prayers, go and fetch Peter, and he, he will tell you. Then why is it that churches feel like they need to cater to those who seek God by organizing their entire worship service to make it friendly for seekers? To do so is simply asking for a lot of tares and imposters and false believers to crop up among them. If we simply let God do the work, they will come. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. Spurgeon on one occasion was preaching that very text from John chapter 6. And he was approaching the people and he says, There are going to be some people here that do not think that they will ever come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some scorners and some unbelievers, but if the God the Father has given you to the Son, you will come, you will come. And there in the balcony was a man who cried out uh, and came to the Lord right then who had been a previous scorner. It was not of the will of man or of him who runs, but of God. We don't have to help God 
make his salvation more palatable to seekers by making the kingdom look more like the culture of the world out of which they need to be saved? Right? In fact, you will see that everyone that came to Jesus and inquired about obtaining the kingdom, Jesus told it like it was. He didn't need to make it palatable. The kingdom was beautiful as it was. They just needed to understand it. And when they couldn't, some turned around and went away disappointed and sad. And he didn't go chasing them, trying to fix whatever it was in their vision to make it easier to come. Those are the two categories that people come in contact with the kingdom. Those who stumble across it, those who seek it, with some examples, but how do you obtain it? That really is the question today. How do we obtain the kingdom? How do we come to obtain this rule and government of God in every aspect of our life? How do you come to understand that? How do you come to receive that? How do you come to yield to that? How do you come to give yourself over to that? How do you come to release yourself into the governing hands of God over all of your life? That's the important question. Because to do so is to find the greatest treasure and the greatest value you will ever have, period. Let's go back and consider some of those examples and let's see how Jesus would communicate to them. The woman at the well is there and Jesus offers, you draw out these waters. I, if you ask for me, I'll give you living waters. Well, sir, give me of these waters that I may never come here and thirst again. What must I do? Go call your husband and come back here. Uh, sir, I do not have a husband. You have said right, you have not a husband. You have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. <sighs> that was his answer. How to obtain the kingdom. Now, why did Jesus bring that up? Why did he address her that way? Because no one of us can ever obtain God's kingdom unless we are first prepared to deal with the fact that we are rebels against the government of God. Are you a rebel against the government of God? Every one of us. Every single one of us. And are you prepared to deal with that this morning? That rebellion shows up in multiple ways. And the Samaritan woman, it showed up in the socially outrageous manner, in the scandalous lifestyle that she lived. And the Lord wanted her to recognize that what her life is, and therefore, what it is, is going to have to change in order to obtain the kingdom. And we have to stop and consider that at this point. Is there any part of your life where you are currently resisting 
the government of God in your life? Are you hanging on to something, unwilling to let it go? Are you fearful in areas of life because you don't trust God's government in those areas? So you try to control them yourself, unwilling to yield to the government of God in those areas. See, we struggle with accepting the totality of God's sovereignty over every detail of our lives, every moment of our lives. We all struggle with this. Yet this is an aspect of that kingdom. That's what his kingdom is about. It's yielding ourselves to this. His rule over our life is what we must yield to. We must bow the knee to Jesus and call Him Lord. He is the King of all kings. He is the ruler of all who govern. See, that's who our God is. And we have to come to Him on His terms. We have to come to Him acknowledging who He is, truly. Not just merely from our minds, but with our hearts and with our lives. And when we do that, Contrary to your natural mindedness, contrary to the way you think about things, it is the greatest priceless treasure you will ever come across. And you will turn back and say, wow, that is so true. God will never let you down. But the temptation to think that you can control your life and protect yourself better than God is a rebellion against his government. So the Lord had to deal with this woman so that she would come to deal with that area in her life. The rich young ruler comes. And he comes seeking, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Well, Jesus is going to take him on a little journey for his sake, not for the Lord's sake, but for the ruler's sake. Well, obey all the commandments. Well, this I've done from my youth. Every one of them kept them. Obviously, the young man was not only wealthy, but he had been brought up in a very devout Jewish home. He understood what the law was. And, and then Jesus brings it right up to a climax. All right, go and sell everything you have. Divest yourself of all of this earthly wealth. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. That's quite a different way. Quite a different answer than he gave to the woman at the well. It almost sounds like you can buy your way into the kingdom. But we know from scripture that is not the case. We know from the multitude. But this is the way he answered her. Him. Then this ruler of the Jews. Very devout and religious man. A a man who was a teacher of the law. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And he says, Master, what uh, must I do? Well, Nicodemus, you must be born again. In your current state and with your status, you are completely incapable of entering the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You need a different life, Nicodemus. And Jesus is telling that to one of the religious leaders Of the Jewish society. How different of an answer is that. To the woman at the well. And to the rich young ruler who came to him. And then the thief on the cross. 
as he looked over to Jesus after he had been humbled, after God had opened up his heart, remember me. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Four different answers on how to obtain the kingdom, but all illustrate the same thing. Like a mechanic who has four different cars, he has to repair in a day and tune them up, and yet he's going to give four different treatments to four different cars, but the end is the same. One, he's going to have to change the spark plug wires. The other, he might have to tune the carburetor. The other, uh, whatever it is, right? Every one of them needed a different approach, but the end was the same. And the Lord wanted the same for all these people. The woman, she needed to change her mind. Part of repentance is the idea of changing your mind with the following change of life. A turn away from the direction you've been headed and now turning to yield to the government of God and the Lord who is the King. So the woman needed to change her mind about her lifestyle. The rich young ruler had to change his mind about all of his earthly wealth and possessions and the confidence that he placed in that. Nicodemus had to change his mind about his approach to religion and his works and in the sense of his duty to God. And the thief needed to change his mind about who Jesus was. Four different answers to four different people, but all with the end in mind. And today, God needs to deal with you and me individually and specifically about whatever it is that you need to deal with to change your mind in coming into the kingdom and under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The man who stumbles across the treasure in a field, he finds it, puts it back, realizes what he has found and he goes and he starts selling off everything and he's got this in his mind and he's just antsy to get it all sold so he can gather it all up and he's going to go buy that field no i I want a little bit more for that okay all right whatever it is that the guy wants to sell it for he's going to buy it because he knows what's in the field He found it. It doesn't matter what it costs. He'll find a way and he'll make his way as long as it takes. He will buy the field. That's how valuable this has become to him. With all the excitement and the energy, he knows the value of what he found far surpasses anything he presently owns or could ever own. And he goes for something of far greater value. And the merchant who is seeking that costly pearl comes across the one-in-a-lifetime pearl. He doesn't hesitate to go and divest himself of everything, sell it all, put all of his eggs in one basket, and get this one pearl because he knows what is there. He sees the value. He makes the commitment. He puts it all on the line, every bit of it. And that's the answer for obtaining the kingdom for all of us. Whether you stumble across it in the field, or whether you're searching for it particularly, the answer is the same. You will have to give up everything you consider the greatest value in life 
every bit of confidence that you place in yourself or other things, whether it be your bank account, your ability, your natural faculties, or all of your giftings, and you go and divest yourself of everything you have, and you go and follow the Lord. And that's what the Lord is saying here. That's what he's saying. It's all or nothing. Everything you deem valuable and worthy and worth a lot to you, everything that has a prize in life, everything that you deem valuable, the big treasures of life, give it all up for the government of God in your life. So what is it that you value so much? That may be getting in the way of getting right with God. And turning over every aspect of your life to his government. Is there an area of your life. Even as a believer. That you struggle with turning over to the complete government and sovereignty of God. That already the implications in your mind are rolling around. Oh no. Or the deceptions of which are being painted for you even now. If you, oh, if you yield that, I'm here to say, you bow your knee to everything Jesus is, who He is, over everything that He reigns over. That's the kingdom of God. The disciples had to learn this a number of ways as they saw demons being cast out, as they saw the wind and the waves stilled, as they saw people healed, as they saw Jesus forgiving sins. He is exhibiting the picture of who he is and what it means that the kingdom of God has come here. So what do you value that may be standing in the way? Your personal peace? The amount of affluence that you enjoy, your lifestyle, your money, your possessions, the things that money can buy, your status, perhaps even a lifestyle of scandalous things like adultery, like the woman at the well. At the time, that was important for her. Something that gave her some sense of identity or self-worth of some sort. Oh, your precious time. One day of the week to get a little rest? Or your desire for a spouse? Your health? Your family? Your family vision? Some dream that you have that you're pursuing that is getting in the way of what God values for you? Or some celebrity status? Yes, celebrity status. It's come closer to home to be able to have some form of celebrity status. Perhaps you have some persona on the internet, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. And you just love getting the likes and and perhaps that's getting in the way of God's sovereignty and the kingdom of God in your life and because you're just living for that kind of appraisal you sense that you're getting and that's more important to you than this pearl and this treasure 
but what are you holding on to that's getting in the way? What are you valuing to keep you from selling it all and coming and getting the greatest of all? What do you have that you keep hanging on to or you can't quite let go of or you keep clutching in this hand or perhaps putting it behind your back so that no one else and hopefully God won't see that you cannot release under His sovereign control? You fear about disease? Do you go to bed at night thinking you're going to get cancer and die or you're going to have a heart attack and die? Does that control your thoughts and your thinking? Is that something that you can just trust God? He's already got that figured out. And it may be right, but you don't have to worry about it. You can't control that. Can you just release that? Can you just bow your knee to Jesus' sovereignty? That He knows everything that's good for you. And He's your good shepherd. He's not going to let any bad thing happen to you. He is not going to let any bad thing happen to you. Do you believe that? If you're His people... Everything is good for his people. But can you obtain that? Because to obtain the kingdom of God, you have to come with empty hands. You can't put any conditions on God because it's his kingdom, it's his rule, and you can't qualify how you're going to come. You can't counsel God. You can't bargain with God. And you can't negotiate with God. What God wants you to do is come and bow your knee. And then He'll give you your marching orders. And it will be the greatest marching orders and the greatest kingdom, and the greatest release you have ever known. The thing that you don't think you can live without, or that your life will be drastically changed if you give it up for the Lord, you're right, your life will be drastically changed if it's standing in the way of the kingdom and His rule and government over your life. Everyone who obtains the kingdom has to have a change of mind. A change of mind which leads his heart to turn. Repentance is a change of mind away from self-government to God's government and rule over you. And even once we come into the kingdom of God, that will be continually true in our lives. And when it ceases to be true in your lives, not only are you in great peril and danger, but it could be an indication that you never had turned to begin with. Change your mind about who is the most special person in your life. From yourself to God. Change your mind about who's going to control your life. From yourself to God. Change your mind about what you personally value in life. To God's rights and not your own. When you're prepared make those changes and to deal with those kinds of things, then your spirit is in exactly the right condition to simply do what Paul told the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? He says. Because he was about to take his life. He was ready to take it all. 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's what it all amounts to. That's the same answer for the adulterous woman. That's the same answer for the rich young ruler. That's the answer for Nicodemus. That's the answer for the Philippian jailer, for the thief on the cross. That's the answer for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and bow your knee who he is and thou shalt be saved. Some of you may have genuinely never really obtained the kingdom of God because you are never willing to give up what you value in life for him. You're not willing to value, give up what you value in life in order to obtain Christ. And if God is dealing with you about that today, don't resist him any longer. Don't let a single day go by without dealing with God on this issue about his total government over your entirety of life. You need to find that great treasure. Perhaps you are here today. You're a believer but one who has lost his first love. The cares of this world and the riches are choking out the fruitfulness of your life and your love for God has been displaced by something else, something of value. Again, I appeal to you, let all of those things go and consider the valuable worth of the kingdom and his rule. Because as he's writing to the church, nevertheless, I have this against you. The Lord is speaking. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And what is true for that church is true for you individually. Deal with this today. Before it's too late. Or perhaps you are here today and you're unwilling or fearful to give over to God's government and control some area of your life. You're afraid to let God take the helm. You're afraid to yield that control to your husband and to your dad or to whatever. Or men to Christ. You fear what may happen and so you clutch it for yourself and you have a sense of false security thinking that you know better than God what can happen and that you can control it and all the while knowing in your head that God will govern that area of your life better than you can. You know that in your head. But he's calling you to give it over in your trust. His kingdom, his rule, his government in this area of your life is far more valuable than anything that you could give or control for yourself. Today, give that over to him and trust him for the outcome, trust him with the results, whatever those results may be, because it all truly boils down to this. Believe on the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou wilt be saved. Past, present. Anybody here need to be saved today from anything that is besetting you? I can raise my hand. What's the answer? Get it all out there on the table. Get it all sold off. Put it all on the line for that one pearl, that one treasure in the field. 
and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou will be saved. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would impress this message upon our minds and hearts and warm our heart with the truth and convict our spirit where it needs to be convicted and bring us to the place of yielding to the kingdom in every area of our lives over our fears, over our clutches, over the things that we value, over our family, and that if we do not love the Lord Jesus more than father and mother and spouse and child, we're not worthy of him. So, Lord, change all of this right now. And how many more family members do you give in return? How much more silver and gold do you own that we could ever fathom? How much more the meek will inherit the earth? Lord, we do this because we love you, and we love you only because you first loved us. Rekindle that love to a fiery, hot, burning love for you. That would be willing at any moment to put it all on the line once again. To die a death that you desire, to live the life that would please you. So no matter in life or death, we are all under your sovereignty, willingly and a willing agent of your good providence. Lord, for those who are struggling in a particular area, or maybe the Spirit has put His finger on a very specific area in someone's life today, we pray you would deal with that person to bring it all under your Lordship. And Lord, as we pray for your kingdom to come, we pray that personally today, that you would bring us more under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, submitting more joyfully and gladly to his reign over every part of our lives. May we be faithful. May we live repentance, changing of our minds, a changing of direction, to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust him with every detail of our lives. Lord, encourage us with this this day, knowing that this is a great treasure of inestimable value, A treasure that we could not make ourselves. The treasure that is there. That we have found. It is here. It is before us. And it is in us. And thankful are we to our great God. For bringing it near to us. In your son Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.